Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for coming. We'll continue reading from Sri Jiva Goswami's Krishna Sandarbha. We are on the 15th Anucheda. So, 15th Anucheda, uh, these beginning Anuchedas, as we mentioned, are from the third chapter of the first canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam, wherein the list of avatars of Vishnu are listed. Different numbers are assigned to them, although the numbers should not be taken as a chronology. Uh, but there is some some semblance uh, as to their different advents, but it is not absolute. So the verse from the third chapter reads as follows. In the tenth avatar, during the oceanic deluge of the Chakshusha Manvantara, he assumed the form of a fish. He protected Vivasvatu Manu by placing him on a boat in the form of the earth. Jiva Goswami comments as follows. The adverbial clause during the oceanic deluge of the Chakshusha Manvantara refers to the deluge that occurs at the end of that period. Vivasvata is the name that would be given later to King Satyavrata. A deluge occurring even at the end of every Manvantara is heard of in Shastra. In the first canto of Sri Vishnu Dhammatara Purana, King Vraja asked, O greatly fortunate Brahmanas, please explain what takes place at the end of a Manvantara. In response, Sri Markandeya said, O Vraj, the mighty Isvara in the form of the ocean, tempestuous with boundless waves, covers the earth in its entirety. O Yadava, at that time all objects on earth are destroyed. But, O best of kings, the famous cool of mountains are not destroyed. Everything else besides the mountains listed in the previous verses movable and immovable, is destroyed. On that occasion, O descendant of Yadu, the earth, becoming a boat, equally holds all types of seeds, the future Manu and the future seven sages. Sri Vishnu Dhammo Tara Purana The same conclusion is perfectly evident in Harivamsa Purana from the chapter entitled Dissolution at the End of Each Manvantara, as well as in the commentary on that section. Jiva Goswami concludes this Anucheda saying it is, with that quote from the Harivamsa Purana, it is therefore to be understood that the mention of the Chakshusha Manvantara and the Vivasvatu Manu in the verse serves simply as an indicator, upalakshana, for the Puranas assuming this form and protecting other Manos in other Manvantaras also. So, Matya Avatar. What we come away from with this Adhacheta is, of course, a description of Matya, the fish, who provides some avenue whereby the earth and all the potential for what the earth has to yield is saved at the end of every Manvantara. A Manvantara is a reign of Manu. In one day of Brahma, there are 14 Manus. And the reign of a Manu, of course, would be Brahma's one day consists of 1,000 cycles of the four Yugas. So, considering there's 14 Manvantaras, each Manvantara's reign is about 71 Yuga cycles. So they're in charge for a long time. 71 cycles of the four Yugos is a Manvantara. And we find that a Manvantara is basically, uh, he, he, has, he has reign over mankind. Manvantara. So 
also it seems that the demigods their reign as far as their the positions they hold in the in the heavenly platform is also of the same duration as a manu now what's clear here from what jiva says and from the verses that he's quoted from other Puranas is there is a partial devastation of the entire universe up to the earthly plane at the end of every reign of Amanu. So this particular verse from the third chapter referring specifically to Vaivasvatu Manu and the Chakshusha Manvantara so Chakshusha, Chakshusha Manvantara, Chakshusha is the name of the, of, the, of the Manu. And then we come to the Vaivasvatu Manu. That's where we are now. We're in the reign of Vaivasvatu Manu. We're in the 28th Yuga cycle, his 28th Yuga cycle. And interestingly enough, this is about he is the seventh Manvantara of the 14, and interestingly enough, this is about the middle of Brahma's day in one day. And once in the day of Brahma, Swayam Bhagavan Sri Krishna, the original god of all gods, the like Swayam Bhagavan, Krishna himself, comes down into this universe once in a day of Brahma once every day of Brahma Brahma lives for a hundred years each one of his years is 365 days so Krishna personally comes into this specific universe 100 times 365 36 thousand times Krishna comes into this universe in his original form and I, that's one thing as we come through the rest of these verses in the uh, in the third chapter as, as uh, Jiva Goswami presents them here we cannot come away from this discourse as it's being presented except in wonder of how how much energy how much of the Lord's Swarup Shakti he invests in maintain of course he maintains and supports everything simply in his Purusha manifestation but all these Leela avatars that are being mentioned here and all the ones that aren't mentioned here which we will come to how many of those there are so is the supreme bestows immense energy and we're just one little mustard seed of millions of mustard seeds if we look as mustard seeds as analogy of a universe on that so it's it's an immense amount of of the sarup shakti either the lord's coming himself or he's enthusing a specific jiva with his shakti different shaktis and this listing of avatars looks at those different kinds of manifestations of the supreme lord either the lord is coming in some form uh, through vishnu or he is enthusing a specific jiva with a shakti so Chakshusha Manvantara is before this one. We're now in the Vaivasvatamanu period. So Jiva Goswami comments that although the deluge is described as occurring at the end of the Chakshusha Manu period, this is merely indic indicative of its reoccurrence at the end of each Manvantara. So at the end of each Manvantara, we see this, this deluge and... Uh, of all the lower planetary systems and Matya appears and becomes the savior of the earth and the savior of the next Manu 
and the savior of all the seeds of the earth. The story of Matsya Avatars is found in the 24th chapter of the 8th canto. He appeared to protect King Satyavrata, the sages, and all seeds and herbs during the deluge. Bhagavad appeared as a gigantic fish with a horn. The king tied a boat to his horn and ascended into it along with the sages and the seeds. While traveling through this ocean, uh, Matya also instructed Manu in spiritual knowledge. Matya offered instructions on spiritual topics. It may be noted that the story of a deluge is common to most religions. The word Noah is cognate with the Sanskrit word now, a boat. So they have a linguistic connection, even in, so we're familiar with Noah's boat. Same thing, same idea is there. Noah put, you know, animals on his, and here we hear see seeds, the sages and the seeds. And what about the Vedas? Did he also say the Vedas? I don't kind of remember hearing that. Uh, it doesn't mention it here. No. Sixteenth Anucheta, the eleventh an avatar, Korma. In his eleventh avatar, when the Suras and Asuras were churning the ocean, the omnipresent Purusha, assuming the form of a tortoise, supported the Mandara mountain on his back. The meaning is self-evident. The story of the Korma avatar is given in chapters 5 to 8 of the 8th canto. It forms part of the episode of the churning of the milk ocean of milk. This is one of the most popular stories described in the Itihasas and Puranas. Korma, who is the symbol of stability, became the support of the Mandara mountain, which was being used as a churning rod. The Donvantari and Mohini avatars also appeared in the course of this event. So this is a three, uh, actually it's a four for, there's four avatars here in this one. Leela. So we'll go on to the next Anucheta and the next verse of the, from the Bhagavatam. In the twelfth avatar, the Purusha assumed the form of Danvantari, and in the thirteenth, he gave the Suras nectar to drink while bewildering the others, the Asuras, in the form of an enchantingly beautiful woman, Mohini. Jiva comments here. Through syntactical connections, anvaya, the verb assumed, be brought, is to be adduced from the immediately succeeding verse, meaning that he accepted the form of Dadvantari in his twelfth avatar and that of Mohini in the thirteenth. In the clause he gave the suras to drink, the word nectar, sudha, should be added to complete the sense. In which form did he do so? In the form of an enchanting woman, Mohini. What was he doing? Bewildering the others, meaning the Asuras. This description should be completed by adding, he brought the nectar in the form of Donvantari. These three, Korma, Donvantari, and Mohini, are all avatars of Bhagavan Ajita. And Bhagavad Gita, of course, was at the head of the stake. The demons, if you know the Leela, the demons uh, were reluctant to get up near the mouth. They said, we'll take the tail. So, churning in the milk ocean. In the commentary, it says the following, which is interesting. The significance of the story in regards to Bhakti is that to procure the ambrosia of the bliss of devotion, one must skillfully administers one's favorable and unfavorable inclinations in the course of service. 
One must be discriminating enough not to feed unwanted desires, as Mohini cleverly withheld nectar from the Asuras. One must act under the guidance of an authentic guru and fully depend on Krishna, as the Devas did. 18th Anucheda Narashrimha Dev. In his 14th avatar, the Purusha assumed the form of a man-lion, Narashimha, placing the powerful king of the Daiches, Hiranyakasipu, upon his thighs. He shredded him with, the, with his claws as easily as a straw mat craftsman spins straw. The claws, Narashimha Bibrat, literally, he assumed that which is of or related to Narasimha, means that he assumed the form Rupa of Narasimha. This story is found in the chapters 8 through 10 of the 7th Canto. And in relation to devotion, this account demonstrates that a devotee cannot be subdued by a non-devotee, even under the most trying of circumstances. The 15th Avatar Vamanadev. In the 15th avatar, again these verses are from the 3rd chapter, 19th verse. The 15th avatar, assuming the form of a dwarf, the Purusha went to the sacrificial arena of King Bali and begged land from him, measuring three steps, with the intention of taking back the domain of the gods. So Bali had stolen, he basically won one the kingdom of Indra. He wanted he wanted to control heaven. So Vamana came to to trick him to get back dominion over everything. And what's interesting that we find in the Bhagavat Purana of both there's a there's I've always seen a a correlation between the Leela of Bali Maharaj and that of uh, Dhruva Maharaj, and the correlation is the resulting benediction that Krishna bestows upon his devotee. Now, if we look to Dhruva Maharaj, Dhruva Maharaj wanted a kingdom that was, well, he wanted a, he wanted a kingdom greater than his father's, but. He kind of said, actually, I just, I want, I want, I want to control it all. I, I don't want there to be any question regarding my sovereignty. Uh, no one's going to kick me off the king's lap again, ever. Now, once he actually had Darshan of the Lord, and he saw his form, and his, was overtaken by the blissfulness of the relate, having any kind of an a, direct contact with the Lord, he immediately recognized the error of his ways. So it was like, I, I, wow, compared to what I can see and experience in you, I'm content with that. I only want to be your devotee, a pure devotee. What I was looking for were broken pieces of glass compared to this experience of your being. So Krishna is always, whenever he comes, there's, there's a benediction. Whenever he comes in the form of the Bhagavad, it's the Bhagavad is full of benedictions. Anyone who hears this story, anyone who reads this story, anyone who remembers this story, anyone who speaks this story is guaranteed this and that. I mean, if you go to the... To, the end of the various leelas throughout the Bhagavat Purana, the benedictions just make you want to never put the book down because there's a lot there. But uh, the point I wanted to make here that I find interesting is Dhruva Maharaj came away from his experience of Krishna with a desire only to enter into pure unalloyed devotion. But because his original approach was one of 
a desire to have sovereignty greater than his father's, greater than Brahma's. He was given his own spiritual planet, which he was given dominion over for some considerable time. I forget what. 38, 36, yeah. Now we look to Bali Maharaj. Now Bali Maharaj wanted to be the king of heaven. And he fought with the demigods in order to attain that position. And then he was defeated by Vamana. But the interesting thing that we hear from the commentary, I believe Vishwanath brings it out in his commentary, is the next Indra will be Bali Maharaj from Patala Loka. So he also came to the conclusion that all I want is Krishna, but still his initial material desire was fulfilled. And he's going to have to take on the next, he's the next Indra probably at the at the end of this Manvantara. He'll take the position of Indra. And how long is that going to be? That's going to be 71 cycles of the four yugas. So if you and me, if we can somehow or other approach our devotional practice as directed by the by the pure exemplars of our sampradaya and not mix in anything else that isn't to say we may not have material lingering material desires here but in relationship to our practice our sadhana our objective the intent of our our sadhana, if it's if it's directed and and we can keep on track, we may save ourselves a considerable amount of time. If there's still some lingering desire for heavenly enjoyment, you could go to heaven. It could be longer than you can even calculate in your current human life. So we we find that. Krishna fulfills, for his devotee, there's no desire that's not fulfilled. So if we can, through proper hearing and association and and uh, the intent of our practice, if we can focus ourselves only on maintaining a pure, unalloyed, approach to devotional service that will serve us well uh, otherwise Krishna still for his devotees there's nothing to be lost but uh, do you really want to be the king of heaven for 71 Manvantaras 71 Yuga cycles if you could have it some other way that could forego that kind of a of involvement even for the life of a deer of course all these things are arranged in such a way that they increase the desire of the devotee but still if we can desire right from the beginning we may not have to stand as uh, you know twin um, Arjuna trees for thousands of years before Krishna advents and, and displays his pastimes. It's funny, uh, well, it's not funny. Anyway, uh, this particular Leela of the of uh, Vamana Dev uh, carries the additional sense of one who dwarfs the pride of miscreants. This tale demonstrates that if, like Bali, one remains under the shelter of one's guru, he remains unopposed even by God himself. Everything belongs to God, and if one offers 
all one's so-called possessions to him, he in turn becomes subservient to such a person. Anucheta 20, the 16th avatar, Parasharam. In his 16th avatar, the Purusha became furious on seeing that the kings were inimical to the Brahmanas and so rid the earth of the warriors, warrior clans 21 times. That's the 20th verse of the third chapter. Anucheta 21. Thereafter, in his 17th avatar, he was born from Satyavati through the sage Parasara, recognizing that people in general were diminished in their powers of understanding, he divided the tree of the Vedas into many branches. 1.3.21 The meaning is self-evident. The 18th avatar, Sri Ramachandra, thereafter in the 18th avatar he appeared as a king intending to accomplish the work of the Suras and performed heroic acts such as restraining the ocean. And we all know how famous the Ramayan is. Although Rama is counted among the avatars, according to Sri Jiva, he is the Purusha himself. So understand that all the various Leela avatars are coming through or come, being manifested by the Purusha. <coughs> and as we've gone this far into the Krishna Sandarbha and seen the various evidences that Jiva Goswami has put forward regarding all the Leela avatars coming from the Purusha, we noted that the Purusha mentioned has been, in some instances, Mahavishnu, Karnadakshai Vishnu, in some instances, specifically in the first verse of the third chapter of the Bhagavat Purana, Garbhodakshai Vishnu. And then we also note sometimes the Purusha is Aniruddha, which is Kashirodakshai Vishnu. So in this regard, what we can say is different angles of vision are there, but the Purushas are all coming from, I mean, the, the Leela avatars are all coming through the Purusha aspect of, of Krishna, that manifestation, which is ultimately Sankarshan, Lord Balaram, Nityananda. So they're all right. <laughs> That's all we can say. They're all right. They're all, all the avatars are coming through the Purusha manifestation of the Lord. So here it's pointing out According to Jiva, he is the Purusha himself, Lord Ramachandra. As evidence of this, as evidence of Jiva's arriving at this conclusion, he refers to Rama's manifesting the universal form of the Purusha, on which occasion the gods, including Vishnu, offered prayers to him. So I'm not familiar with the Ramayan as well as I, others are, but I guess Lord Rama at one time during his manifest Leela showed the universal form. So where that's stated, I'm not sure. We could research it, but based on that, as evidence of this, in other words, of as evidence of Jiva Goswami's conclusion that Lord Ramachandra is the actual, is it the Purusha? Uh, he's referring to this manifesting, Rama, Ram's manifesting the universal form. So when he, when and where he did that, I'm not sure. The 19th and 20th avatars, Balaram and Krishna. Jiva begins again by quoting from the third chapter. In the 19th and 20th avatars, Bhagavan took birth, appeared among the Vrishnis as Balaram and Krishna, and rid the earth of her burden. 
So here, this is the first time we see in the actual verses themselves from the third chapter, the use of the word Bhagavan. And the use of the word in the context of the sloka from the Bhagavatam is that of referring both to Krishna and to Balaram. Jiva says here, the word Bhagavan in this verse, this is Jiva's Anucheda, has been employed in a special sense to assert that these two are directly the manifestation of Sri Bhagavan himself and not of the Purusha called Aniruddha. So here Jiva uses the terminology Aniruddha. In this regard, the function of removing the burden of the earth is affected by Bhagavan alone, both through his direct form as Sri Krishna as well as through his plenary portion as Sri Balaram. Therefore, the clause Bhagavan rid the earth of her burden is applied to both of them. On this account, the view that Balaram too is an avatar of Aniruddha is refuted. I guess some people believe that Balaram is just like any other Leela avatar and not of the Bhagavan class. Uh, since Sri Krishna is Vasudev and Sri Balaram is Sankarshan, this refutation is certainly appropriate. So the word Bhagavan is not used in any of the verses. The 21st avatar, Buddha, Anucheta 24 verse from the third chapter. Thereafter, when Kali is underway, he will appear in Kakata as Buddha, the son of Anjana, for the purpose of deluding the enemies of the Suras. Interestingly enough, in the commentary here, Sachin Arayandas points out that the Bhagavatam verse and the historical account of Lord Buddha seem to not yeah, jive, uh, coincide with each other. Uh, the name of the city. So the name of Buddha's mother, however, as given in the verse, does not match that of the historical Buddha's mother. Uh, according to the Buddhist tradition, Buddha, Gotama Siddhartha, was born of Maya Devi, wife of King Suddhodana, the ruler of Sakya clan in Lumbini, currently in Nepal. And then uh, Satyanarayan works to harmonize mm -hmm. these by looking at the, at, the, at the actual words from the Sanskrit verse of the Bhagavatam and bringing out different meanings that would give significance to the point that the Buddha that we're familiar with, again, the Buddha that, the Buddha, historical Buddha that we're familiar with does in fact coincide with the Buddha uh, as mentioned as a Leela avatar. And in I was thinking about this to some extent also. Sometimes we find this in the Bhagavat Purana. Things don't seem to correspond correctly, but you have to understand that what the Bhagavat Purana is doing here, what we have here is we have Sutta Goswami at the very beginning of the Bhagavatam giving an overview of the various Leela avatars as they've come to him, you know, in disciplic succession. But we notice sometimes this in the Bhagavat Purana and in the other Puranas that facts don't correlate unless the, they're correlated with a prior cycle of the yugas. So these Leela avatars are coming in every yuga, well actually more than every yuga. They're coming in, yes, they're 
and a cycle of yugas they're coming and then they're coming again and again you know repeatedly there's going to be some variance of exactly what happens from one yuga cycle to the next mahayuga the four yugas together there's going to be some variance there so we can also in looking at at these apparent discrepancies reconcile them in some way and not get hung up you know neurotic well that doesn't match how can you say that's the buddha doesn't you know the, it's not the same mother it's not the same city not the same you know so we don't need to do that we we more need to take from the bhagavat purana those things that nourish our nourish our spiritual growth even you look to the to the counting of time and the yugas i just saw something that uh, guru maharaj swami triparari had posted uh but it related right to that. Somebody was pointing out, wait a minute, this historically just doesn't match. And he said, you're missing the point. The Bhagavat Purana is that place where the infinite meets the finite. That's, that's the point that's, in, that's to be taken. And we have an opportunity here through the Bhagavat Purana to take advantage of that meeting of the infinite with the finite so it's not about measurements of time and yes things may not and what the archaeologists dig up may not correspond here or there or you know but then again lots of times it does there, you know some devotees have taken considerable time and written big books Forbidden archaeology, a big book, trying to correlate all the, you know, all the Puranic texts to historical digs and finds and 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 the, you know, the uh, progress of time according to modern understanding and the understanding that's put forth in the Vedas. It's nice to do, but the significant thing here is that, you know, we're meant to. We're meant not to get so hung up in in our measuring capacity. It's, the Bhagavat Purana is in, about something entirely different from that. Of course, we all know the the reason for the advent of Buddha. Of course, is and that's the thing that that really ties the verse to the actual Buddha that we have experience of is what did he do. And what he did is he he brought about a change in consciousness whereby those who were putting themselves forward as Brahmins and mis, actually misusing portions of the Veda to perform sacrifices, um, just for their palate, basically. Uh, and they're actually... They were foretold in the Mahabharata. There's a verse there that says, In that yuga, Treta, the animals will be sacrificed by sprinkling holy water and then killed in sacrifice. Dharma will diminish by one-fourth. Witnessing this degradation of the people and Vedic Dharma, Buddha appeared to them to give up the Vedas, appeal, appealed to them to give up the Vedas and follow the path of nonviolence. Thus it could be said that Buddha misled the Asuras born as Brahmanas so that they could be weaned away from the Vedas and the corruption that had set in. And I would encourage anybody that wants to see a, uh, uh, a nice presentation of the, of the evolution of spiritual thought through time to... Uh, there's a book called The Evolution of Theism. The name is, of the author is Narasringa Swami, but I found out subsequently that the majority of the articles that made up that book, because it deals with all the different, the progression from Buddha, 
Sankaracharya, Ramanujacharya, Madhvacharya, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So it's the book is named the, the Evolution of Theism, and the articles that were written were primarily written by Swami Triparari, and, and they were articles from a magazine that was put out uh, regularly called The Clarion Call uh, years ago. So that book is uh, it's very good because you can see how each one of those acharyas, well, starting with Buddha and incarnation and coming up Sankaracharya, they all had their part. You know, of course, Sankaracharya being Shiva, they all played their part in bringing us, bringing human society collectively up to a place where the advent of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and what he had to give to humanity, society was gradually taking step by step up to that level of theistic thought through these various acharyas where they could accept someone, the teachings of someone like Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So it had to be done gradually. First of all, you have to throw out, basically clean the slate. And that's what Buddha did. He just wiped the slate clean and said, forget these Vedas. There's nothing there for you. If all you see in the Vedas is animal sacrifice, then Vedra Himsa. And then Sankaracharya, well, yeah, but the Buddhist theory is basically based on an ultimate attainment of nothingness. The objective of their meditation is sunyavadi, void. Let us enter the void. Sankaracharya said, eh, that's okay, but look at the Vedas. The Vedas have a little different approach. So you have a whole human society that's now embraced Buddha and embraced this ideal of spirituality being to with, withdraw from material activity and aspire to a position where you're no longer influenced by karma. Well, that's good. We're not against that at all. But they didn't give anything as far as a spiritual attainment. It was just voidism, just turn off karma. That was the extent of Buddha's thing. Just turn off karma and be there. Be where? Be there. Be it. So Sankaracharya comes along and he says, yeah, that's okay, but the Vedas have a little better idea about the there. The there is not just nothing. The there is something. The there is that spiritual energy that pervades and supports everything. It's 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 all all it's all embracing. You are as a jiva that substance Brahman. Become Brahman. So he accepted the Buddha's idea of the world being an illusion but he went on to say, but yes, it's an illusion. And what it is, it's an illusion of the fact that you don't realize you are something. You are spiritual substance. So better you become your spiritual substance. Become that without your karma. And then you have Ramanujacharya that starts to introduce the idea of the conception of a supreme personality behind that Brahman effulgence. Coming up to Madhvacharya, develop a relationship with that personality. Coming up to Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So gradually, step by step, we have this evolution from Sunyavadi 
near Vishesh, then the conception of Ishvara from the Madhvas, I mean from Ramanuja, coming up to Madhvacharya. And Madhvacharya, it's funny, Madhvacharya, we've gone over this, Madhvacharya had some ideas that don't really fit into our understanding of the jiva even. Madhvacharya said, if you're not a Brahminical jiva, there are, the jivas themselves are not uniform. From one jiva to another, there's not uniformity. There's jivas in the mode of ignorance, jivas in the mode of passion, and jivas in the mode of goodness. Only the ones that are goodness jivas can attain mukti. So you, if you're not a if you're not a mode of goodness jiva, you're not gonna. What's there's no there's no spiritual nothing spiritual that you can attain. Well, you're that's you are what you are, so there's nothing you can do. But if you are a mode of goodness jiva, you can attain mukti, and there's some methodology to that. So we don't accept that. Luckily, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's presentation was a little broader than Madhvacharya's. Well, we don't accept that either. It's the same kind of argument. It is. Actually, it is. I've thought of that point, too. All right. Oh, my gosh, I'm past time. So we'll stop there at the 25th Anacheta with Kalki, and we will continue in our next discussion. Kalki's it. And then Jiva Goswami will go on to explain all the myriad other Leela avatars and avatars and dissensions of the Shakti, and specifically the Surup Shakti of the Lord is it's coming again and again and again. It's it's nothing that's it's not like the Jivas are within the material environment and there isn't some very determined effort on the part of the Supreme to uh, give them all opportunity for perfection. Any questions? I was thinking how um, um, back then it was like one, you know, and then the next one appeared and then the next thought, you know, was built on that one. Um, but now it seems like they're all existing at the same time. Mm -hmm. And um, how does the jiva still go through all those? Um, because I I was under the impression that uh, the jiva gets a, a seed from what, whichever path they're exposed to. Mm -hmm. um, but now it seems like there is um, a conflict in idea or, or um, like a progression almost of thought where you know they may be on the same In human path. society at large we're seeing this progression of thought. Uh -huh. So then the question basically would one would come to a to a natural uh, question or objection, well what does that mean that not all jivas are afforded the same opportunity for spirit for for the ultimate in spiritual perfection is basically what we would come we we question that well why isn't everybody offered the the opportunity of the dis the dispensation of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and it's it's an interesting idea because we see that. In other sampradayas, of course, like you take Madhva and his followers, who who worked, who whose sadhana was directed towards uh, a concept which it may have been just Lakshmi Narayan in Vaikuntha as their ideal, their istadev. So we would say that in comparison with with the dispensation of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu that's much less of, a, of an opportunity. 
and therefore you'd say, well, does that mean that at a, one specific point in time, one jiva is given one opportunity and another jiva at a different point in time and a different, you know, would be giving a diff, given a different opportunity. I don't think that's the way we should look at it because we're looking at it from a perspective of that time. Of course, time I am, Krishna says, but that means Krishna is time and Krishna is, he's making appropriate arrangements for every jiva according to that jiva's desire. So he's coordinated, I would not think that that would be the proper way to look at the evolution of theism or the fact that a specific jiva attained liberation under a specific lineage with a, a specific ideal or istadeva we'd say like Lakshmi Ryan or, or Ramachandra or whatever the circumstance may be. A better approach and vision from a spiritual viewpoint would be this was all is all being perfectly arranged by the Supreme. So they're being put in a circumstance at a point in time in a point of their spiritual uh, progress that affords them the opportunity to reach their ideal. And once somebody's so far along that that ideal has become fixed, we call that sty, sty bhava is fixed. It's fixed. You're not going to be able to sway them. If it's Lakshmi Narayan, it's Lord Ramachandra, you know, even, even Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu himself could not make such adjustments. And devotees were, that had already come to that stage of, of loving affection for their Lord. So I understand what you're saying, but I'm saying just take a little different perspective of it. Don't see time as a linear thing. See time as an energy of the Lord, and the Lord is spe specifically arranging everything for his devotees according to the heartfelt desire of the devotee. So initially, yes, it's it's bhakti is completely independent, but still the Lord is not, you know, is not. Otherwise, the Lord and bhakti Devi becomes controlled by time. That would be a misconception on our part. Anything else? I thank you so much for your association.